This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Welcome to the Collector Car Podcast. I have got a ton of stuff to cover in this episode, including the cars I think you should buy now as they're going to go up. Uh, it'll be fun going into the demographics here as why I picked these particular cars. Now, this is not necessarily for investment advice. It's more so to buy these cars while they're still affordable. So this is for entertainment purposes only. There's a new event you need to put on your calendar. It's called Moda Miami. You can go to modamiami.com and check it out. Automobiles, Art, and Elegance is going to be quite the car show. Uh, this occurs the 1st of May, and it's at the Biltmore in Coral Gables, just outside of Miami. It is an incredible-looking facility. It's from the 1920s. Uh, let's see. It's a jazz age icon. I'm showing some pictures on YouTube right now. Incredibly beautiful setting. There'll be this amazing car show occurring uh, at the hotel. So again, that's beginning of March. I believe it's the first through the third, 2024. So put that on your calendars. Uh, a few other things I wanted to mention first is I have a 1982 Mercedes-Benz uh, 500SL pre-AMG merger car that's available for private sale. I believe I have a deal done, but just wanted to put it out there if you're interested. Shoot me a note, gstanley at rmsouthwees.com. What is cool about this car is we had one, a sister car, in the Miami sale, and it really speaks to the next, next generation of collector car buyer. Uh, the one in Miami, I think the estimate was ninety dollars to $100,000. It sold for almost $300,000. It had 70,000 miles, and I believe it was a 276-horsepower version. The particular one I have for private sale has half of those miles, and it has the $6,800 upgrade to the 300 horsepower version. $6,800 back in 1982 was a ton of money. So some great providence on the car, AMG documentation. Also, I do have a 1990 Fleetside 454 SS pickup truck that's available. It's in the wrapper. It still has the plastic on the uh, seats from the factory, still has the window sticker taped to the window as it came out of the factory onto the dealer showroom floor, it is in that con in that condition. And I'm looking for a Mura for a client. It doesn't have to be an SV, but just a stellar example. So again, gstanley at rmsouthabees.com. Now for today, I kind of wanted to dig into what's going on in the collector car market, uh, and specifically the folks that are buying and will be kind of the powerhouse buyer in five years. So now the average age of buyers at collector car auctions has recently decreased from 62 years old to 58 years old. So it has gone down and continues to go down as that next generation comes on board. Now this buyer falls within the Generation X uh, category. Now the Generation X spans from 1965 to 1980. I'm a Gen Xer myself. And in five years, because I want to look five years into the future, Generation X, their age range will be 48 to 63 years old making them the most influential buyers in 2028 in the collector car market. Now, my, my goal for this podcast is to identify the cars that will appreciate the most in the next five years. Now, I am taking out some of the ones that uh, we always talk about. I'll get to that in a second. Um, I think this is kind of a tough exercise as I believe the current collector car market peaked about four months ago. And you'll see in my numbers here, 
at least in the latest year, all the cars I think I'm talking about, and one or two are even negative, but they're all uh, declined greatly when related to their three-year trend. All right, now I do believe this valuation will continue to decline over the next three or four years. However, I believe the cars that I'm about to cover will buck this trend somewhat. They will either not decline as much or not as all. So they should beat the market. Now, I will sh be sure to revisit this list in 2028 to see how well I performed with my numbers. All right, so I need you to follow me on my thinking here. So I believe most car collectors seek the cars they desired when they were around 13 to 16 years old. Now, my only data point for this would be Jay Leno. So Jay Leno has about 188 cars, and by far, the most cars he has in his collection are from 1966. And guess what happened in 1966? Jay was 16 years old. All right. Generation X turned 16 between 1981 and 1996. Now, that is not a stellar time in the automotive industry to kind of pull out some collector cars. But I worked hard on this, and I, I pulled some out. Now, the median for this time frame is 1988 and a half. Now, I believe this is the era of cars. Gen X will continue to pursue, which will result in record prices for these cars in 2028. All right, let's see. Um, now, like I said, I removed any of the cars we've already talked about, such as the 550 Marinello, the Diablo, the F40, 911s. <clears throat> I wanted to review some of the cars that may not already be on your radar. Now, I do have some honorable mentions that I wanted to get on this list, but there just wasn't enough room or time. Uh, some of the honorable mentions include the Honda Prelude, the Acura Integra, BMW, 318 Sport, any of the AMG Mercedes, the Boxer Spider, uh, specifically uh, the Spider version. Uh, let's see the Subaru WRX STIs and the Lancers. All right. Now I did want to give a note on how these percentages works. How these percentages work? I just had someone ask me about this, so I'm pulling online. I'm pulling up our first examples: the 1995 BMW M3 lightweight. Uh, so when I say that it's up in this example four percent. You can just, over the latest year, you can just visualize a, a bar graph line going slightly up 4% in valuation from the, the beginning of the year until now. Now, when I look at the three-year, uh, for this particular example, it's up 84.6%. So that's a even sharper line going up gradually. There might be some dips where it did decrease in value for a month or two. But overall, from the beginning of the three years until today, it is up 84.6%. And for the five-year number, it's up 103.6%. So again, it's kind of like a mountain, kind of kind of undulates a little bit as it goes up. There's some peaks and some valleys, but in that five-year time frame, it does uh, it does go up 103.6%. Um, so sometimes that can be a little bit confusing. So when you think of in three years, it's up 84%. In one year, it's up only 4%. That means over the last year, growth has slowed. Uh, tremendously compared to the three-year number. So I hope that helps, but let's get to the first one here. So the first one here is the 1995 BMW lightweight, beautiful car. And here's a note from Car and Driver. Back in 1995, the E36 M3 has a new, was a new entry to the U.S. <clears throat> and the lightweight attempted to correct the neutering, albeit for an extremely limited number of owners. I don't know what that's referencing offhand. I guess they felt like it didn't have enough power. 
All right, the CLS, as it is sometimes called, got the stiffer European suspension, a shorter final drive, forged wheels, and hand-picked engines good for a claimed 240 horsepower. In reality, the engines were probably a little more powerful. On the outside, all, lightweight, all lightweights were painted alpine white with a tricolored checker M motif on the left front and right rear quarters. Used, uh, they used the adjustable front splitter bar from the European-only M3GT and had aluminum door skins. Buyers of lightweights did without the radio or air conditioning in their cloth and carbon fiber trimmed interiors. So uh, just a really cool car. So it basically takes the lightweight premise to the next level. Now it did come with a bunch of parts in the trunk, which is kind of cool. Uh, that include underbody bracing, a strut tower brace, a larger oil pan with dual pickups to avoid starvation and high G driving, a park bench sized wing. <laughs> Not every dealer installed the parts, so sometimes you can find these where they're still in the wrapper in the trunk, which is kind of cool. So I just went over the market trends on these one year up 4%, three years up 84.6%, and five years up 103.6%. Number one condition, they're worth $336,000. I believe this is the most expensive car on this list today. I did try to pick uh, not as collectible cars, uh, just to try to get that price point a little bit lower. Now I do want to pull out, when possible, the one I think you should buy if you're going to buy one of these, and that would be one of the Paul Walker cars. So actor Paul Walker passed away a number of years ago. He was a big car enthusiast. He actually had five of these cars. So now this is from Motor Trend. The sale, the stars of the sale, this is speaking to a Barrett Jackson sale, were arguably Walker's collection of rare 1995 BMW M3 lightweights, special versions of the E36 generation M3s. Let's see, blah, 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 blah. All right. Just 126 lightweight spec cars were built for the U.S. market, and Walker owned five in total. An example with just 4,600 miles from new led the charge, reaching an incredible $385,000 after buyer's premiums. The other four lightweight sold between $220,000 and $258,000. Now, what's interesting is one of my previous guests, who unfortunately has passed away, Eric Keller of enthusiast auto group here in Cincinnati and Sharonville. I was on his podcast, our YouTube channel, and we talked about these cars before they came up for sale. I'm sorry, right after they came up for sale. And he stated that the one that hit the hit the buzzer at $385,000 was not the best car of those five. Yes, it did have 4,600 miles, but it had been raced and seriously hit in one of the corners and had some structural damage that needed to be fixed. So he thought it was interesting that that one brought the most because of the mileage, when in actuality, one of the higher mile cars was probably uh, the better car of those five. All right, next. Now, this is a car I wasn't familiar with until I started uh, digging into this. Uh, 1992 to 1996 Ford Escort RS Cosworth. The Ford Escort Cosworth seems to have entered popular folklore as the car that, for a while at least, killed both killed the hot hatch. Here was a car so quick, so capable, and yet so desirable that the insurance company threw a hissy fit, made it all but insurable, and applied the same policy to anything with a GTI badge on it. While history may record a black mark against the Escort Cosworth, anybody who ever drove it could understand frustrated young men wanting to get behind the wheel at any cost. 
It was good. Even by today's standard, it more than shapes up, making tracking down a decent used example a fascinating experience. Now, this is from a website called RAC, and it's uh, UK. So this is probably UK only, uh, but that still would be a fascinating car to find and bring over to the States if you could find one. All right, the next is a car that we all know and love. It is the Mazda Miata. All right. I tried to pull pictures from RM Sotheby's, but there just weren't a lot of Miatas sold <laughs> at RM, as you can imagine. So uh, the pictures I'm showing right now are strictly from the Google. All right, from car and driver, the first-gen Mazda Miata, known as the NA, strikes an ideal balance between vintage feel and modern reliability, and collectors have taken notice. Light and eager, the Miata is blessed with near-perfect steering, a wrist flicker shifter, textbook handling, and an easy-to-drop top, all of which combine to turn a dull drive to the grocery store into a qualifying lap. Consider a limited slip differential a must-have. Otherwise, it's really a toss-up between the 1.6 and 1.8-liter engines. The 1.8-liter is about a half-second quicker to 60, but the smaller engine is just a little bit smoother. So from a valuation standpoint, I did not have any valuation uh, information for the Cosworth, um, the car prior to this. Uh, for the Mazda Miata 1990 to 1987, I picked a 1992 car for an example. Number one condition, $31,900. One year it's flat. Three years it's up 25.6%. Five years up 134.6%. So you can see how the latest one year, a lot of these have slowed or stopped uh, growing in value. Now the one to have, there's actually two here. There's, there's quite a few different packages, but the two I picked out is the R package cars from 1994 to 1997 and the M editions. Now the M editions were pretty cool. They're basically paint and chrome, uh, but they had some cool colors. They were basically 1994 to 1997 as well. So those are the ones I would go after if you were looking for a Miata. They also had, a I think, a race spec one. So they had some cool options there. All right, next is a cool car. It is the 1993 to 2002 Mazda RX-7. Now, sometimes I, I don't know if I'm right on this, but I think I've heard people reference this car as the jelly bean car because uh, it does have a cool look to it. Um, this is from classic.com. All right, the third generation Mazda RX-7 identified, sorry, I'm having some technical issues here, identified uh, by chassis code FD, so you'll hear them referred to as the FD RX-7s, was produced between 1992 and 2002, although it was only available in the U.S. from 1993 through 1995. This generation was a departure for the model as it was only offered with a twin-turbo engine. Now, from RM Sotheby's, on March 25, 2002, Mazda announced the Spirit R range of RX-7, so this is the one I think is the one to have sold exclusively in Mazda's homeland as a staple of the Japanese domestic market scene, JDM scene. And this is the one I'm showing the picture of right now on YouTube, which is why it is right-hand drive. Limited to 1,500 units and available in three specifications, Type A, Type B, Type C, the Spirit R marked the end of the third generation RX-7. So the one I'm showing online right now is an absolutely gorgeous, uh, kind of like a dark blue color. Uh, let's see, this is a Ultimate RX-7. One of 1500 this is innocent blue mica is the color <laughs> the estimate on this one uh this is in pounds was 70 to 100 000 pounds it sold for 105 from a market trend perspective 
valuation perspective, number one condition on a 1993 RX-7 is $81,900. One-year trend is down 1.6%. Three-year trend up 27.2. And five-year trend up 137.4. So these are declining in value right now only from their peak, which was this previous year. The one to have is the one I mentioned, the Spirit R Type A, which apparently is the most uh, powerful package of those three types that I mentioned earlier. All right, the next one is a car I don't think, I don't know if I've ever talked about, at least not in length. It's the 1994 to 1995 Ferrari F355. Now, this is from Haggerty. Ferrari introduced the 355 in 19, in mid 1994 in Europe as a replacement for the five year old 348. The car represented a substantial leap in performance and handling when compared to its already capable predecessor. Available in the U.S. from 1995 to 1999, the F355 employed a 3.5 liter 5-valve per-cylinder V8 motor that gave it 380 horsepower in one of the best Formula 1 style shrieks Ferrari ever produced in a streetcar. That's where the 355 comes from. The hardtop Berlinetta and Targa-style GTS models appeared in the U.S. in 1995, with a convertible version appearing a year later in 1997. Oh, I'm sorry. In 1997, an F1 paddle-type gearbox was introduced for the first time in any street Ferrari and was available in all three body types. The one I'm showing right now online is from the Gene Ponder collection that sold last year. Uh, this is the one to have. It's called a Siri Fiorano. Fiorano. Is that how you say it? In? All right. Anyways, it's the series finale. It's the last year of production. Uh, they only made, a, I want to say, 100 of them. Uh, the estimate on this one was 140 and it sold for over $200,000, which speaks to the, the desirability of these cars. Now, from a market trend perspective, I picked a car from 1996. The number one condition is $194,000. One year, it's up 6% three years up 49.2% and five years up 145.6%. All right, we have just a few more cars to go here. The next car is another Ferrari, but not a big crazy Ferrari. This is the 1992 to 2003 Ferrari 456. All right, I've got a gorgeous one pulled up online here. Uh, let's see, from RM Sotheby's at the 40th anniversary celebration, uh, let's see. In 1992, Ferrari introduced its newest four-seat grand touring car. Boasting elegant Pininfarina styling, the 456 GT would propel Ferrari into the 21st century while hearkening back to their stunning GT cars from the 1950s and 1960s. I always thought this was a handsome car. I would not have called it attractive. I guess that's the best way to put it. As a four-seater Ferrari grand tourer, the 456 GT's performance was exceptional. Its new 442 horsepower V12 ensured it would could reach speeds of over 186 miles an hour and accelerate from 0 to 60 miles per hour in just 5.2 seconds. The powertrain include the revered, the revered <laughs> six-speed gated manual transaxle for ideal weight balance, while its suspension featured telescoping gas-filled shocks and a self-leveling rear axle to, for ultimate road holding at speed. All right, the 456 GT lately has been sought out by collectors for its superb grand touring capabilities. 
uh, elegant styling, wonderful performance, and compliant suspension. So the example I'm showing right now is one of the six-speed ones, which adds a ton of value. Let's see. For this example, I picked, from a valuation perspective, I picked a 1996 GTA. So that would be one of the automatics. That's not worth as much as the six-speed. Number one condition, up eight, uh, sorry, $85,000, one-year change up 14.2%, three years up 37.3%, and five years up 39.5%, not up nearly as much as its six-speed counterpart. Now, the one to have would be one that went through the uh, Skygalite personalization program. So this is where they offer two-tone paint schemes and a lot of different cool stuff. So if you were to buy one, if you could find one of those, uh, specifically a six-speed with low mileage, uh, that would be to one to buy. All right, next, we have four more cars to go. The next one is a 1992 to 1996 BMW 850 CSI. Uh, the picture I have uh, on board online right now is one from Amelia Island. That's a really special one. All right, from RM Sotheby's, initially developed to be a standalone product, of BMW's motorsport division, the E31 850 CSI was the Mark's high-performance flagship model between 1991 and 1996. Exorbitantly priced and incredibly exclusive, just 225 examples were allotted for the U.S. market for, for the 1993 and 1994 model years, although all order slots were already filled by winter of 1993. At the heart of the, C, at the 850 CSI is a V12 an incredibly smooth 5.6 liter engine delivering 380 horsepower. Compared to its original blueprint found in the standard 850, this power plant featured lighter pistons, a forged crankshaft, upgraded camshaft, retuned intake and exhaust, higher compression and auxiliary engine coolers. An exclusive engine management system allowed for a gear dependent variable rev limiter and selectable power maps. Wow, that is a lot. All right, let's see. So interestingly enough, the valuation for these, uh, they did not have the CSI, so I had to base it on a 1996 CI. So this would not be the CSI, but still gives a general trend for values. So in number one condition, it's $89,000. One year trend is up 2%, three years up 32.6, and five, year, five years is up 69%. So the one I have online right now, I'm showing the picture of the VIN right now. This is the car to have, and it just sold at Amelia Island recently. Uh, it is serial number 00001. It was such a cool car in such immaculate shape, red, black leather interior. Um, I think it, to me, it sold fairly cheap, honestly. Not cheap, but uh, the estimate was 175 to 225. Yes, that's a ton of money. It sold for 218, but it's 0001. So I thought that was a really cool. It was the press car. If you were to have one, uh, this is the one to have for sure. All right, next, we've got three more to go. Next, it's the 1991 to 1995 Toyota MR2. I've never been a huge fan of these. I always liked the one, the generation prior, that's a little more wedgie. Uh, let's see, from Haggerty, pop-up headlights at the front, T-top, roof in the middle and a big sweeping wing at the back when it comes to 1990 sports car charm you can't do much better than the second generation mr2 the sw20 as it is commonly known or the mark ii is more familiarity is a 
that doesn't make sense. Is a is a product of a simpler sports car era. Its mid-engine featherweight gets by without traction trash control, ABS, or power steering. Now, the one that I have on here for some reason is a right-hand drive. I'm not quite sure. All right, the Mark II was introduced in 1990 for the 1991 model year, replacing the first-gen MR2, commonly called AW11, the early MR2. Uh, stood for midship rear drive two-seater was a wedgy and quirky take on the affordable sports car theme the second gen smoothed off the edges bringing a vastly more modern look to the table it is good looking i think the third generation i think is just ugly uh, but this one does look pretty good okay how does the valuation look on this car there was no valuation available on the second gen mr2 there was on the first but not the second uh, the ones to have, though, apparently there's some interesting packages on the second-gen MR2. One of them is called the G-Limited Billiston Package. I'm assuming that's uh, a shock setting uh, option, you know, firmer shocks for cornering. And the other one I find is pretty funny. is the G-Limited Super Edition. No specs on what that exactly meant, but I would assume those are the cars you want to go after if you're buying yourself a second-generation MR2. All right. Two more. Uh, let's see. This one we're talking about. Everybody knows this car. The 1993 to 2002 Toyota Supra, also known as the Mark IV, from Arm Sotheby's. In 1989, Toyota's engineers began to drop plans for a new generation of Supra. The replacement for the A70 generation car was designated A80 and would be, fourth, would be the fourth generation of the desirable Japanese coupe, which over time had accrued a reputation as a legend of the Japanese domestic market scene, JDM scene. The newer car placed much greater emphasis on performance and could be specified with the all new naturally aspirated 2JZ GE engine or the top of the range twin turbo 2JZ GTE unit. Liberal use of aluminum throughout the A80 resulted in a curb weight that was 91 kilograms lighter than its predecessor. All right, so from a valuation perspective, I picked the car from 1997, number one condition, $299,000. One year up 45.1%, three years up 115.1%, and five years up 223.6%. Uh, the one to have would be the 15th anniversary. I do have a picture of that car uh, that was sold at Arm Sotheby's recently. Let's see, the estimate was 60 to 80, I'm sorry, 60 to $70,000. It sold for $77,000. It must have been a higher mileage example. Uh, this one is a beautiful Royal Sapphire Pearl over ivory leather. So great spec on this particular 15th anniversary car. All right, we're on to our last one. Now this is one you might not know about. It's the 1993 to 2002 Pontiac Firebird Firehawk. I only have one picture available of this car. I remember when these came out new. I thought they were pretty cool looking. So from Haggerty, there was also, a special edition Firehawk, now this is referencing the base Firebird, produced by SLP Engineering but sold at Pontiac dealers. These cars had more power and better suspension and, totally, and today are fairly hard to find. From 1993, all Firehawks were based on Firebird formulas, while from 1999, the Firehawk could be had as a formula or a Trans Am. There were no 1998 Firehawks. The most desirable SLP Firehawk from a collectability standpoint would be one of the 29 1997 models equipped with the LT4 V8 out of the Corvette Grand Sport. 
but any Firehawk would be considered a real find. Like Camaros and Corvettes, Firebirds have long represented a lot of speed for the dollar, especially the Firehawks. All right, so for the valuation trend, I did pick the 1997 LT4 because that's the most desirable and the one to have. Number one condition, $92,000. One-year trend up 10.3. Year, Three-year trend up 56.5. And five-year trend up 56.5 as well. All right, let's see. All right, so that's it for this episode. Uh, you know, if I'm still doing this in 2028, I will be sure to go back and check these cars and see how they performed. Um, if you find one of these, snap it up now. I'd love to have this 1997 Firehawk uh, LT4. That would be really cool. And lastly, if you if you haven't joined my YouTube channel, please do so. Please subscribe, share with friends. Um, the YouTube, uh, the podcast is on there as a video and I'll pulse in some fun videos. I am doing daily 60 second videos of keep cash or collect and I would appreciate the support. So I will talk to all of you next week. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.